Matthew 6 and verse number 24. Matthew 6 and 24. We're going to talk today about the greatest goal in life. What is the greatest accomplishment, the greatest achievement that a man can attain unto in his mortal life? Matthew 6 and verse number 24. Jesus says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. Now, let's, let's make sure we understand the phrase, take no thought. Right? The, the temptation is to look at that and say, well, Jesus is saying, I'm not allowed to make any plans for the future. I'm not allowed to let this particular topic cross through my mind. And that's actually not what he's saying. For one thing, if you look at the Greek word, there's one Greek word that gives us that phrase, take no thought. That word can also be translated, be not careful, which it is in, in Philippians 4, or don't be anxious. We might say, don't worry. Don't worry. So you understand there's a difference between recognizing the future, knowing that you're going to have needs, and then making a plan to provide for that. That is not wrong. God is not against a savings account. We talked about that last week a little bit. Jesus, you'll hear this phrase over and over again in the passage, take no thought. He's saying, don't worry about this. These are not the things that you need to stress out about worry about and feel anxiety over. In verse 25, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? The people that he was preaching to, their tendency was to get panicked, worried, stressed out, anxiety-ridden because how am I going to provide? Where are we going to find these absolute basic necessities? Verse 26, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Jesus is not giving a lesson against farming, right? Fowls, the birds of the air, don't farm. Now, we're human beings. We're not birds. So, so be careful to, to get the point that Jesus is trying to drive home here. He's not against the, the, the boer life, the, the farmer's life. He's simply saying that these animals that can't farm and don't farm God makes sure that they're taken care of. Now, you're more important than birds. You're much better than they. And, it, and the same God that created them, who takes care of them, He's the same God watching over you. Verse 27, Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? Again, that taking thought, you can sit there and be worried about how short you are. You'll still be short in the morning. Well, actually, I think they've now discovered that in the night you actually grow like a centimeter, but then as day goes, as the day goes through, you know, go, you go through the day, you shrink a little bit. But 
you're not going to get stressed out about about your about being vertically challenged and then make it any better. Verse 28, and why take ye thought for raiment clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory, and he had some, was not arrayed like one of these. You and I both know that there are people that spend hours on their wardrobe. And yet when you just look out at the grass of the field and how God has decorated it, with flowers that fit so perfectly together, so aesthetically pleasing. God does such a better job of taking care of these things. Verse 30, Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall He not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Guys, when you worry, it it is one of the most offensive things you can do towards God. It shows a lack of faith. It's the same as your child coming to you. And and you as a mom and dad, you know that you're going to do everything you can to provide, but your child saying, Daddy, I'm scared that you're not going to take care of me. When you have done your utmost, and there's no precedent for that, there's no reason for him to be afraid, your love has been made clear and manifested to him, and yet he's still afraid and worried and panicked that Somehow you're going to forget him. It would be a pain to any dad's heart, to any mom's heart. Imagine how we make God feel with our little faith. Verse 31, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Basic necessities. If you read this passage in the book of Luke, chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus says, Don't be of a doubtful mind being worried. So we don't, if you don't uh, have a Greek dictionary, you don't want to bother with the Greek, it's no problem. The context itself, the Bible itself, in English as we have it, and this will work even in Afrikaans or any language, if you just compare Scripture with Scripture, it will interpret for you what the phrase, take no thought, means. When you compare it with Luke 12, it means don't have a doubtful mind. Verse 32 For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. The Gentiles. He's talking about the rest of the world. All the heathen. What are they after? What is the greatest goal in their life? Epicurus summed it up by saying this. He was an ancient philosopher. Eat drink, be merry. For him, the chief goal was happiness. Personal pleasure. His teaching got twisted and perverted as years went on. This isn't a lesson on his philosophy, but I believe it sums up well what the common man, just the man of the world, what is his greatest goal in life? Eat, drink, and be merry. The bigger the barns, the better the life. Do you, does everybody know that reference? Luke 12, that man who had a great, great amount of crops come in, a lot of income. So he tore down his barns, built greater barns so he could store it up. And then he said to his soul, soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He thought, I've achieved life's greatest goal. 
Yeah, according to the world, that's as good as it gets. That's the life. Jesus tells his disciples, your father knows that you need those things. He, he realizes that you can't go through life without those necessities. But there's something more to life. Did you catch it at the end of verse 25? Is not the life more than meat and the body and the rain? Isn't there more to life than that? Do you know how many people that go through life trying to fill this void that is obvious? They, they know it's there. They can't really explain it. It's like a scientist trying to explain dark matter or dark energy. They don't know what to call it, so they, they use different terms. They're not, not really sure what it is. The same thing happens with spiritual darkness. A lost man looks into his soul and he, he, he knows that something's missing. He doesn't really know what to call it. And he tries thing after thing after thing trying to fill that void. The problem is he doesn't know what the goal of life, what the purpose of his existence is. Either he is ignorant of it or has rejected the fact that we were made in the image of God. And when man sinned in the garden, that image became broken. It became distorted like a perfect mirror that was shattered. And now you can try to put it back together, but you're going to see the cracks and it's, it's not going to give off the proper image. And we know something's not right. But because we were made in the image of God, there is this longing within mankind to connect with our Creator. We have something in common with Him because we were made in His image and in His likeness. And until our lives come in line with that created purpose, things just don't feel right. There's that emptiness, that darkness. Hence the next verse. Verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. Don't panic about it. Don't be worried about tomorrow. You say, but Brother Mike, the coronavirus this, the vaccines that, the microchip this, the quantum dot that, the lockdown, the economic da 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 da. You know what? We can only deal with what's going on today. I'm not against being informed. I believe the prudent man sees the evil and hides himself. That's, that's a, a smart thing to do, to be informed, right? But not to panic. Not to panic. Life is going to offer you plenty of pressure. Pressure is part of life. And sometimes it is God-ordained. Sometimes God brings the pressure. Sometimes God simply allows the pressures of life to come down on us. We can't escape it. But I love what one preacher said. Pressure might be from God. The situations of life might press you hard. But stress or anxiety is the unbiblical response to pressure. Verse 34, if it was employed faithfully, would eliminate I want to say a lot, but almost there's a part of me that wants to say all 
stress and, and, and worry and anxiety. The reason I'm not going to say all is because we still have a sinful nature that is going to falter. But I believe that the advice Jesus gave in verse 34 is ironclad. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. Have you ever kept yourself up at night worried about the next day? I have. You know, it never helped. For the morrow shall take thought for the things in itself. Right? You can think about tomorrow, what do I need to do? What do I need to do today to prepare for tomorrow? Okay, if, if there's something you could do today to prepare for tomorrow, go do it. Then after you've done what you can do today, go to sleep. There's no point in sitting around thinking, what, do I, what about tomorrow? What, tomorrow, you'll think about that tomorrow. Sufficient, Jesus says, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You're going to have enough problems today. There's enough pressure today. Deal with what's in front of you now. He said, but what about the future? What about these things that I know are going to happen? Then do what you can today to prepare for that. And if you've done that much, take it easy. That's good advice. I'm not so great at following it. I'm getting better, by the way. As the years go, God gives me more and more victory, and I thank Him for it. It's still a struggle. But I feel the peace of God come over my soul more and more as I actively seek to use the advice that Jesus gave in the greatest sermon ever preached, this Sermon on the Mount. I would like to today... I. I wanted to, as I read through, explain a couple things, make sure that you understand the terminology. I believe that a a sermon about uh, worrying and anxiety and how to trust God, I believe you could find a great sermon in this passage from that. I'm not preaching that today. I would like to focus in on one verse. I'm going to preach a textual sermon for those of you in Bible school. All of my points are going to come from verse number 33, which I think is what, what the theological world knows as a salient verse. It is one of those verses that just seems to rise above the rest. Every Christian should have it memorized, I believe. Maybe after today's sermon, we'll look at it so much you'll have it committed to memory. But before we get into it, could I ask you to please bow your heads with me? Let's ask God to help us further. Father... It is a great privilege today to have the Word of God opened, to have the opportunity to talk to the saints. And I can't do this without your help. I don't want to do it without your help. Father, on this day, the world has set aside time to recognize just how how tremendous a blessing it is to have a mother. And for those that are listening that have godly mothers, oh, they're doubly blessed. Help us, Lord, today to recognize and honor and make, make her feel special. God, thank you for our mothers. Lord, I do pray that you please fill me with your spirit. I need that unction from on high. I pray that you might touch hearts today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I believe. Now, it would be simple, easy to just go through this verse step by step, but... I think the world often, let's not say the world, I think we, right? let's, let's, whether you're Christian, whether you're not, I think we as humans, we get this backwards. 
we tend to live this verse starting at the end. So there's three things I want to talk about from the verse. We're going to talk about the prize. We're going to talk about the pursuit. We're going to talk about the provision. The provision. But I'm going to use the reverse order of verse 33 because I think that way too often we put the emphasis on things rather than the kingdom of God. So at the end of the verse, we have a wonderful promise. We have a promise for provision. Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, food, uh, drink, raiment, the necessities. You understand what He's aiming at. The necessities, the things you cannot live without. Those things have been promised. Can I just ask you a quick question? The provision that is promised to you are are the things that you need. How much do you need? Now, before you give a quick answer based on the budget that you've put together for yourself, I said need. I'm not asking how much you need to maintain your current status of life. But how much do you need? You see, God might give us what we need and then we need to adjust to what He's given us. Oftentimes, we give God the number. We offer Him our budget and say, Now, God, I need you to provide enough to fulfill my plans and wishes and dreams. What God has promised to do is provide those necessary things. And because God is a loving and a very kind God, He often blesses us beyond measure. Amen? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, God who does exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. And I, I, by no means, I'm not trying to put you under conviction if you have, if, God's a ble- if He's blessed you abundantly with things. The Bible says you're allowed to enjoy them. But as we talked about last week, you're not to set your affections on them. Be careful that the things you have do not have you. But I'm asking this morning, how much do you need? How much do you need? Now, you answered that question, rightfully so, in the sense of provision, the things. How many things do I need? How much money do I need? Food. How much uh, rent? And that you have to think about that. Now let me ask you this. How much God do you need? How much God do you need? I believe it's, it's how God made us that we desire to be comfortable instead of uncomfortable. I don't think it's sinful that we want to be comfortable. Right? I think that's part of just the way God made human beings. I don't think that's a result of the sinful nature. We desire to be comfortable. But the goal, the main goal, the greatest goal in life is not to achieve carnal comfort. Uh, comfort. If that becomes the, the greatest goal, to be carnally comfortable, you're missing something. You're missing it. That's not the end goal of life. I fear that too many times people read verse 33 incorrectly. Let me, you can see in your Bibles the way it's written. Let me read it the way a lot of people understand it. You'll pick up on the change in the middle of the verse. Uh, 
It says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, so that all these things shall be added unto you. Did you catch the difference? You say that's some that's just a small thing, that's just semantics, it's just a you know, you're using different words, but it says the same thing. Not not really. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, so that if you read it in such a way, what you're saying is, I will seek after God and righteousness because he's the one that's going to give me the things that I need. Well then God is now a means to an end. Do you understand? The end is the provision. We use the provider just to get the provision, and now the light has become darkness. How great is that darkness? God is not a means to an end. God is the end. He is what we are striving and pressing towards. He is the one we are pursuing. We are not to spend the greatest efforts of our soul to achieve simple carnal comfort. Rather, the focus is our affections are set on, our heart is set on the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Those things God has promised to take care of. I think maybe you can understand it in this way. In Philippians 4, verse number 12, Paul says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. When somebody gets the priorities right, they seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. They're not worried about the things. They know that God will provide the things. They have a great peace and comfort and joy in knowing that they are doing exactly what God wants them to do with their lives. They are not ignorant of the physical needs, and those needs will be met. Paul said, if the things come or if the things go, if I'm abounding, if I'm suffering need, if I'm hungry, if I'm full, either way, I've learned to be content in either condition. Why? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I can be satisfied with whatever God does provide. I always think of Job in this situation, whether he's abundantly blessed with earthly carnal pleasures, carnal not in the sinful way, but you understand he had lots of uh, possessions. He lost them all. And he says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a man who has the verse in the right order. He has sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The things come, the things go. But the things... Guys, that is what God provides. That is not the prize that we are to seek after. God will take care of you. What a wonderful promise. But it's not about the things. It's not about the things. Before we talk about the pursuit, as I said, I'm, I'm moving through the verse backwards. So the, the end of the verse speaks about the provision. God said He would provide. 
let me be careful not to skip saying this. You came into the world with nothing. It's a guarantee that you'll leave the world with nothing no matter how much effort you put into saving and how frugal you were and how hard you worked. You leave with as much as you came in with nothing. That is when we're talking about physical, carnal, earthly, temporary things. If you lay up treasure in heaven, if you have a relationship with God, do you realize that transcends the grave? Because the relationship that you begin with God in this life does not end with your physical demise. It extends through all eternity and it only grows better and better as the years progress. Do we need the provision? Yes, and the Father's aware of it. Jesus is not shy to tell us that. Is that the greatest goal in life? I hope not. There's got to be more to life than meat and raiment. So before we talk about the pursuit itself, I want to talk a little bit about the prize. The prize. What are we pressing towards? What are we aiming at? I, if we properly understand what the kingdom of God is, I barely think, well, I should say, I, I think I would barely need to speak about the pursuit once you know what you stand to gain by ordering your life according to the teaching of Jesus and seeking first the kingdom of God, if you know what that prize is, I think the pursuit will happen automatically. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, A.W. Tozer, if you have never read any of his books, I Strongly recommend reading every single thing this man has written. I have yet to find a book of his that I do not like, that I have not extremely profited from. They sell it at Kuhn here. I just want to give you a quick quote from one of his books. This one is on worship, as you can see. Fantastic book. And let me read it for you, and I think you'll see how it would be applicable. He says, Oh, how I wish I could adequately set forth the glory of that one who is worthy to be the object of our worship. I do believe that if our new converts, the babes in Christ, could be made to see his thousand attributes and even partially comprehend his being, they would become faint with a yearning desire to worship and honor and acknowledge Him now and forever. I, I, I fully appreciate what he said, especially at the beginning. How I wish I could adequately set forth the glory of that one who is worthy to be worshipped. I have so many times tried to preach on the greatness of God, His glory, how we should worship Him. We always fall short. There... There are not enough words in any language, in all languages put together. There just aren't enough expressions to properly paint the picture of the God that created us and came down amongst us to die for us and reconcile us to Himself. That We simply lack the words. 
And, and the reason I've read that to you is because the same is true for what I'm about to talk about. I, I can explain the kingdom of God, but I cannot do it justice. And I recognize that. I will go as far as I can with the words that the English language affords me. Have you ever participated in a game only to win a prize and the prize disappoint you? Right? You were expecting you know, maybe a big cash prize or you were expecting some nice trophy and you ended up getting something that was honestly kind of embarrassing. I've had that happen on a few occasions. But I know growing up, I was a, don't hold it against me, but I was real big into 10-pin bowling. That was my sport. Now, if you think that's kind of a strange sport to be interested in, some of you like cricket. So, yeah, we're even. But I was a, yo, I spent hours and hours. I sometimes would bowl 30 or 40 games a day. I was preparing for the Olympics. Even as a young man, I was pressing towards that. I, I won quite a bit of money in uh, legal tournaments and then also gambling on the side. This is before I got saved. Uh, I, I was quite good at it. I had my sets sight, uh, my sights set on going pro at some point. And as I grew up, I, I won trophies. I won plaques. I won a jacket. I won rings, by the way. That's the only thing I kept of all those achievements. I still have the rings because the, one has an emerald, the other has a ruby in it. Very special, very great accomplishments. The rest of it is gone. The rest of it is sitting in a box somewhere in America in my dad's closet, corrupting. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24, They that run in a race run all, so run that you may obtain. Run and and try to win the prize. He says, now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible The people of the world will put in so much time and effort and devote their minds, their hearts, their lives. They'll ignore their families. They'll put aside a walk with God simply to achieve some worldly accomplishment and not to make light of what they achieved, right? You're allowed to achieve something in this world. You can be successful at whatever you're doing. But what did it cost you? What is it going to come to? What's the prize of it all? To to simply be able to say, look at what I have. Look at this trophy. Wouldn't the greatest trophy be a smile on God's face? What do we mean when we say the kingdom of God? Well, for most people, when they read the phrase kingdom of God, they say that's heaven. That's heaven. So we should seek to go to heaven. Guys, did you know that the phrase kingdom of God never means heaven? Not one time, not once. The phrase kingdom of God, it indicates that God is in control of something, that he is ruling over it. Now this this is used two ways in the Bible. This one phrase is used two ways. Number one, it can refer to a political kingdom, outward, physical, political kingdom, just like you would see any government right? Set up, any kingdom set up. The kingdom of God is a government that is controlled or or run by God's laws. So God's will is accomplished because his laws are enforced in that society, in that government. We see this throughout the Old Testament. At least that was was the goal. Uh, God tried to set up a theocracy, 
with the nation of Israel. He gave them his laws, and as long as they submitted to those laws, you had the kingdom of, there are various names, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of the Lord, kingdom of God, call it what you want. It was his kingdom. What Jesus will one day establish when he comes back to the earth, he will establish his own government. He will rule the world as king of kings. And once again, you will be able to call that political kingdom the kingdom of God, because God's will, it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's the political version of it. There's also, however, a spiritual version of it. So we have the political, that's an outward kingdom. We also have a personal, inward, spiritual kingdom. And the phrase kingdom of God can refer to that invisible, inward, spiritual kingdom. And in this sense, God is ruling in your heart. You can illustrate it in your own mind as God seated upon the throne of your heart and you are a willing, happily willing subject. You have handed over the reins of your soul and said, God, please, you take control. When that is happening, the kingdom of God is fully operating in you. This is something that could not be fully realized in the Old Testament because it wasn't until Jesus came, shed his blood, and made reconciliation possible. Right? made forgiveness of sins. He made it possible for the Holy Spirit to live, to indwell us, and to work in us. The Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament, but He couldn't do as much as He can now because we are living on the other side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So when we read the Old Testament, sure, those people did have personal relationships with God, and they were able to yield to whatever God was telling them to do, but you and I today, we have such a precious gift in that when we seek the kingdom of God, we say, God, I want you to control my life. I want you to rule over me. This is not a, a promise that falls on deaf ears. It's not as if God says, there's nothing I can do about that. When, when a sinner cries out to God with that humility, then the Holy Spirit brings this person to Christ, directs that person's attention to Jesus and says, look at what he did for you. His blood shed on the cross paid for your sins and he made it possible for you and God to be reconciled. And now sin no longer has to rule in your heart. You don't have to be a slave and in bondage to your old nature. You can now yield your members as servants unto righteousness. You can now live a life that is completely pleasing to God because God is going to live within you. You're, you will be His temple. Uh, can I ask you to turn your Bible to just two places? Look at Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. I want to make sure we understand what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God, as I understand it, in Matthew 6, 33. And, and please understand, you can find there are other places where Jesus used the phrase kingdom of God in reference to the political kingdom. But more often than not, I believe it refers to this inward, personal, spiritual kingdom. You'll see it here. Romans 14, verse 17. 
It says, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not physical stuff. There's more to life than that. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. According to this, where is the kingdom of God? It is in the Holy Ghost. Let me try to give you some synonyms to help you understand it. When somebody is filled with the Spirit, which is to say, yielded to the Spirit, which is to say, in submission to the Spirit, which is another way of saying, under the control of the Holy Spirit, which is another way of saying, walking in the Spirit. You can continue on with the synonyms. I think you see where I'm going. When somebody is walking in line with how the Holy Spirit is directing them, they are seeing the fullness of God's kingdom operating in their life. God is in control. That is the greatest goal in life. To line up with your created purpose so that when God beats the drum, you march to the beat of that drum. And as you march step by step, having your heart, having your ear pressed against his, his bosom and hearing his heart beat, boom, 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 and lining up every step with that heartbeat of God, the smile that comes across God's face because he's watching you living that life of faith, He's so pleased to see this happening. This is what He made you for. He created you to enjoy you and you to enjoy Him. This is why at a a point in your life, and everybody, anybody listening to me today, at some point in your life, Jesus comes knocking at your door. And as He knocks, He speaks. He calls out. His voice to me is calling. That's what the song says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Jesus has come to you. He desires to have a lifelong fellowship with you. Me with you, you with me. That's what he says. Let's Spend time together. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Where is it? It's in the Holy Ghost. What do I find in there? Peace, joy, righteousness. I'll live the right kind of life. I'll have the peace of God because I know that He's happy with what I'm doing. I have this contentment and this joy that even though everything around me seems to be going wrong and there's chaos, it's so satisfying to know that I am right where God wants me to be. It's the greatest thing you can achieve in life. And it's worth the pursuit. I want to show you another verse. Please turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. As we near the end of this sermon, I, I cannot go on before showing you this passage. I believe it helps us understand so much. Philippians chapter 4. 
and verse number, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Can, can I use different English there? I want to get a hold of the reason God got a hold of me. Why is God so interested in me? I want to figure that out. I believe that's part of seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. I want to find out, God, how do you want to work in my heart? You're doing something in me. I can feel that. And all of this started with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, so I know it's linked to that. But God, I, I don't think I see the fullness. I don't understand everything that you want me to do. And I'm going to continually follow after and seek to know everything that you want for me to do. And, and I'm only going to learn that on a daily basis. But I will continually pursue so that I can achieve this prize. Verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I, I haven't fulfilled at all. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What would that high calling of God in Christ Jesus be? I'm going to give it to you in two versions. Number one, ultimately, to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of your judgment and say, Lord, I did that which Thou gavest me to do. And for Him to respond with a smile and say, Well done, Thou good and faithful servant. It doesn't get any better than that. Now, that's what ultimately we'd like to, to hear. That would be the prize, right? Who cares if it's a golden crown or if it's a jewel or if you get to rule over a certain amount of cities. Those things are true. Those things will happen. But it's not about that. It's about where, where those things came from. They came from Him recognizing and being pleased with what we did. It, on a daily basis, this is also true. On a daily basis, the Holy Spirit can bear witness with your spirit. You can lay your head on the pillow at night and hear the still small voice of God saying, this was a good day. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed walking with you today. Thank you for giving me this day. Thank you for living this day the way I wanted you to. This is not only applicable to preachers, businessmen, mothers working at home, taking care of the kids, mechanics, dentists, doctors, accountants, bankers, uh, taxi drivers. It doesn't matter what the job is. When you yield your life to God and allow Him to control how you go about life, here's what happens. You don't quit the job. You start doing that job, that task, the way God told you to do it. You start doing it right. right. That's what we talk about with His righteousness. You seek it. God, I have this job. You gave me this opportunity. How do you want me to do it? God says, here's how you do it. You see, it's not God on one side, money on the other. And, you know, I'll split my life. I got part of my life is for God, part of my life is for money. You don't have two lives. You have one. 
and you need to prioritize. Is it going to be God first and then he tells me how to find and manage the money? Or do I put money first and I use God just to get the money? You have one life. You have to choose your priorities. Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God every day. What I want to achieve is to be able to say, today the kingdom of God was in operation in my life. If I can do that on a daily basis, one day when I stand before God, I don't stand there in trembling and fear. I stand there with great confidence. And in closing, I want to say a few things. Back in Matthew 6, verse 33, we've moved our way from the bottom of the verse, all things added. That's the provision. Then we talked about the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's the prize. A, A life lived right, done God's way. Now we're going to talk about the pursuit at the beginning of the verse. He says, Seek ye first. Seek first. Can I do it this way? Big letters. Seek. Little letters. First. Jesus commanded you to seek it. This tells me something. God's not going to do it for you. People sometimes have the attitude, well, you know, God's will is always done. No, it's not. No, it's not. God's will often involves our willing participation for it to be done to completion. When He tells us to seek, seek ye first, it's a choice we have to make. I'm going to have to put some effort into this. I'm going to have to find out, am I a mechanic? Let me find out what the Bible says about that. Am I a dad? What's the Bible say about that? A husband? A doctor? All those things. God, show me how to live in my circumstance. And then, let me switch it. Seek first. Now let's switch it. Seek, little letters, first. Big letters. Seek first. You need the priorities. As I mentioned earlier, you only have one life. It's not You can't put God here and then money here and then family over here. You, what you do is you say, God, He is the head of it. The kingdom of God, that is, He is reigning over everything. Now, He will tell me how to manage family, hobbies, uh, 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 work, all of these things. He'll take care of it. Be careful not to put money at the top of that list. I think you might remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel, they saw that Samuel was growing old and they knew that his sons were wicked men. They came to Samuel and they said, Samuel, you're old, which that's kind of on the nose, but you're old and you're going to die soon and we, we, we don't trust your sons, so here's what we want you to do. Make us a king so that we can be like all the nations. They had been living for about 400 years a life in complete rebellion to God. A little glimpse of submission here and there. But when you go through the times of the judges, here's how they summed it up. There was no king in Israel in those days. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That is the exact opposite of the kingdom of God. God was not in charge. Everybody just did what they thought was right. Do you know that's true for a lot of individuals as well? There's no king in your heart. You make your own decisions, which actually is your sinful nature doing that. But the king of kings is not ruling in your heart. You're doing that which is right in your own eyes. 
If you're going to seek first the kingdom of God, you can't be like Israel and say, uh, Preacher, make us a king so we can be like all the nations. You know what God said to him? God said, Samuel, all right, go ahead. Choose him a king. It, it was a punishment. Choose him a king. We'll give him a king that they deserve. They have not rejected thee. They have rejected me that I should not rule over them. When you fail to seek the kingdom of God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, what you're doing is saying, just like Israel, we'd rather be like all the other Gentiles. And God says, you're rejecting me. Why won't you let me rule over you? I want to read you something else. This is from a different Tozer book. Just, just as we... I'm I'm bringing this to a close, but as I said, there's so much that can be said. I want to make sure I get these few important comments in before we're done. Please listen carefully to these words. I'm going to take my glasses off so that I can actually read it. Being made in His image, we have within us the capacity to know Him. In our sins, we lack only the power The moment the Spirit has quickened us to life in regeneration, our whole being senses its kinship to God and leaps up in joyous recognition. That is the heavenly birth without which we cannot see the kingdom of God. It is, however, not an end, but an inception. For now begins the glorious pursuit the heart's happy exploration of the infinite riches of the Godhead. That is where we begin, I say, but I'm, that is where we begin, I say, but where we stop, no man has yet discovered. For there is in the awful and mysterious depths of the triune God neither limit nor end. Shoreless ocean, who can sound thee? Thine own eternity is round thee. Majesty divine. You know, one complaint I get from married couples on a consistent basis is they say, you know, back in the day, especially this, forgive me, men, I'm going to pick on you for a moment, but the, the ladies will often say, he used to pursue me. But now we've been married X amount of years and the romance is kind of faded, and he, he doesn't seem that interested, and he doesn't make this effort the way he did before we were married. Why? Because as the man says, well, I landed her, I, I found her, I got married, I said the I do's, and then all of a sudden we think the pursuit is done. When we come to Christ, we come sinful, we come broken, we come dead in trespasses. And we go to God and we say, God, I've made a mess of my life. I have the wrong focus in life. I've tried to fill it with all these things. I've tried to fill that void and nothing satisfies. And the Holy Spirit points you to Jesus and says, everything you'll need, you'll find it in Him. All the answers that you've been wondering about in life. What is the meaning of life? What's the greatest goal? Where should I spend my time and attention? What's the priority? There it is. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, there it is. And we 
When we go to pursue, we say, how much should I pay? What will it cost me? And Jesus says, I paid the price. You can enter the kingdom of God, this spiritual kingdom. God can rule in your heart. All you have to do is accept by faith that what I did made it possible. And if you accept me by faith as your Savior, I will come in and I will begin to fellowship with you and day by day, week by week, you'll get to know me better. And the more you know me, the more you will want me to have control over your decisions. You'll want me involved in every aspect of your life. At no point in this, at no point as you seek God, will you say, Aha! Now I have found out everything there is to find about God. Isn't it interesting? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. He never mentions anything about finding it. Tozer had an interesting comment about it. He said it like this, to have found God and still to pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. <laughs> because we do say, I found God. There is a day in my life, August the 3rd, 1996, that I accepted Christ and I say, I found God or rather was found by God. But at the same time, quite ironically, that is when my pursuit of God truly began. And it still goes on to this day. Ladies, happy Mother's Day. Maybe this will help. Wouldn't it be a blessing if the man you're married to were to continually put that effort into knowing you better, to falling deeper in love with you, walking with you, loving on you, wouldn't that be wonderful if He continually pursued you? Wouldn't that be a great manifestation of how much you mean to Him? Now folks, what do you think it would mean to God if you were to continually pursue, continually follow after? As David said, I follow hard after Thee. Seek first, seek forever. The kingdom of God, God's will being accomplished, God operating in your life is a worthy prize. It's worth the pursuit. Let's pray, if you would, please. Let's bow our heads together and let's have a moment of prayer. Father, thank you this morning for the privilege to talk about your kingdom, to talk about what Jesus came to do and how you made it possible. Lord, you desire more than just a simple transaction of sins being forgiven and a person going to heaven. There's so much more to it than that. Lord, please help us to, as much as we can, in our limited capacities as, as sinners, we want you to be in control. We want that peace and joy of knowing you in a deeper level every day. Thank you for pursuing us. You came looking for us and told us to seek you. Lord, help us to put some real effort into that. Thank you for taking care of our necessities, for providing all these things, and you do so abundantly. Help us always to be thankful and grateful for that. Lord, help us now not to set our affection on those things down below, but on things above. I pray you please bring us back 
tonight, 6 o'clock, hungry hearts, learn more. God, please bless the mothers today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.